Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now in our Bloomberg 1130 studios is William Lee. Bill is the chief economist at the Milken Institute. It's great to have you with us here. Uh, Great to always. be here, David. Let me start with these two Italian banks. I will not uh, torture the audience by trying to pronounce them, but I want to talk to you about <laughs> regulation here in the U.S. But let's let's start broader. Let's sure. start uh, with the message this sends, uh, this this Italian uh, bailout sends, about how the regulatory landscape looks uh, looks in Europe. Yeah, the regulators are trying to fix the European banking system by saying, you know, look, we got to get bail in. We got to get the stakeholders to really care about the banks. And so they want the management to say, we're going to do better banking. We're going to give better loans. And the stakeholders have got to make sure the management does that. What this signal says, is that, you know, next time. <laughs> now, right now, the, the, we're going to do the old uh, good bank, 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 bad bank model. We give the good assets to Intesa. And, and for the bad banks, you know, bad assets, we're going to have the taxpayer take care of it. That just raises moral hazard. And, and as a model for the rest of the European Union and the banking system there, it's a, it's a terrible precedent. And I think one of the things that the regulators have to get act, their act together about is, do you really seriously mean the policies that you're putting in place? And if you do so, stay with them. Make sure that, that, that you have some credibility being formed. Right now, the Italians have really gone backwards. Or actually, you know what? It's probably good for the Italians, but it's lousy for the rest of the euro area. And, and, and the, the regulators in the rest of Europe are going to say, my God, what are these knuckleheads doing? <laughs> we, we had a, a spirited discussion last week. Uh, Bob Schiller was to, to my right. Uh, across from him was Peter Wallinson of the American Enterprise uh, Institute. We were talking about Dodd-Frank and how financial regulation looks uh, today, low these many years after the, the financial crisis. And something that uh, Professor Schiller said that struck me as, as interesting is it's hard to assess the efficacy of this law because it hasn't really been tested in many ways uh, yet. You don't know how it's going to work when we have another crisis or we have the need for, uh, you know, when, when banks are in another precarious position as they have in. Where do, you, where do you see the status of, of Dodd-Frank? Can you begin to assess its efficacy, do you I'm think? glad you bring that up because Milken all, is all about getting capital to the right places and to the right people. And, and the banking system is absolutely critical for getting it to small businesses. And so, so, in fact, what we're doing in Washington is to hold a roundtable to try to assess where the Dodd-Frank legislation is going. Insofar as it's been implemented, um, no one really knows how well it's doing because the implementation is a, is a fly-by-night kind of story. That is, we're going to figure it out as we go along. We kind of have it figured out for the U.S. banks now. We've raised capital. That's great because the, the U.S. banks are stronger than any of the, the European counterparts. So we're super competitive mm. on that score. But now they're going to say, you know, it's been such a successful model, so-called, because we, we now have strong big banks. Let's apply it to the rest of the financial system. And that's where the problem is going to be. Because you can define a systemic failure as a bank going down because it's part of the payment system. And, and the payment system is what makes the bank systemic. Now, what happens when you have an asset management company? And suddenly the asset management company says, oh, gee, we have a lot of losses here because some weird event happened, whether it's international or domestic or whether it's a company or sector. Now you're going to ask yourself, what is systemic about 
a, a company like BlackRock, uh-huh. right? Is is that is, you know the fact that people lose a mon- lot of money? Does that make it systemic? Well, yeah. If it's if you're you're lo- it's lousy if you're a Chicago pension fund, right? But if you're just a, a, a rich a hedge fund owner, right? Hey, yeah. you're supposed to lose money. Yeah. Good morning, Bill Lee, with us with uh, the Milken Institute. To me, one of the great topics is leverage is solution. And that if you have less leverage, everything is supposed to get better. Do you buy that idea? No. Is that too simplistic? <laughs> I, th- I think that is the greatest nonsense in the world. Because Thank you. Leverage is not a source of risk. It's an amplifier of risk. If you have a lot of leverage, yes, whatever goes wrong goes badly, really, really badly. But whatever goes right goes really well. And so so leverage is something that's a tool that you're supposed to use along with all the other tools. So and I don't want you to comment on the Swiss banks, but the Swiss banks lead the charge with bringing down the leverage, making for a more solid balance sheet. Do you suggest that really doesn't change the risks out there? What would change the risk is to change the risky behavior of management. So what the Swiss are trying to do is to say, we're going to take away the amplification that we know bad management is going to do. So what, what that's implicitly saying is that we don't trust the management. We're going to take away all of the transmission channels that amplify the risky stuff that they're doing. And I think that's uh, the wrong way about it. Go to the source. Go to the source of what they're doing that's causing the, 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 the systemic risk to be such a big concern, especially for a national authority like the Swiss. We got this uh, 140, 150-page report from the Treasury Department last week, the first uh, chapter of many, I gather, from the Treasury Department. That was focused on banks, regulation and and banks. What did you learn from that document about where this administration is headed when it comes to to regulation? Laid out in that report are steps that the uh, regulators can take to change uh, rules. What did you take away from that report? I I think that it shows that the administration actually was listening to what people were saying about the implementation of Dodd-Frank. As I said, it was sort of fly-by-night and and, and sort of doing doing it by ear, but, but what the administration is saying is that we've heard some good ideas and so what we're going to do is not mess with the legislation because that's going to be a mess to to have to go through Congress, but we're going to deal with it on a supervisory level. We're going to have the supervisors implement it in the same way that takes into account the feedback from the... the, the, the people. When you were with Willem Bowder at Citigroup, you were flying at 30,000 feet. Now you're with Milken, so you're up at 70,000 feet <laughs> with oxygen strapped on. If a mere mortals like us look at the economy, is it a 3% U.S. economy right now? What's unfortunate is that the productivity numbers just haven't come up. And by definition, you can't get the high growth numbers we want, which is 3% or better, without productivity coming up. And why is that? Because you haven't used technology properly. Why haven't you used technology? Because the people who have the technological progress that can apply the stuff haven't been getting the funding. And, and getting back to the regulators, mm. if small banks are not putting out small loans, and instead what Dodd-Frank has done is to, and I've written about this, that it's in the American Banker, it's on our website, what Dodd-Frank has done is to incentivize banks to get big loans out because it's less, more cost-effective for them to give big loans. And that just feeds money to the companies that don't need it, the, the medium to large-sized companies that have money coming out of their eyeballs. The small companies that would get you the, the, the high growth rates, the high technology components that are going to be integrated, as, as the BMW case is a good example mm-hmm. that we mentioned earlier that BMW was able to combine good management, good technology, and increase American jobs in building cars, of all things, right, to export for BMW. That's the kind of, of technology we need to incentivize, and that means getting loans out to small businesses with the good ideas that will hire more people. Does this administration get that? Does the president get that? We saw what he said when he was in, in Europe on his first trip uh, abroad about the German trade deficit. Does he understand the role that a company like BMW is playing in creating American jobs? Well, don't forget, BMW producing cars here is increasing the American 
American surplus by exporting cars out of here. And I think that's the future of new trade policy. The future of trade policy is not going to be between countries. It's going to be between uh, among, within the sector and between companies. We're going to try to find ways of trying to shape the, the already distorted trade that's out there because nobody in their right mind believes this free trade. It's a world of distortions because what's the EU all about? It's called a trade a customs union, right? That means we've distorted trade to favor the European countries. What we need is, is, is another offsetting set of distortions to, to put American workers back into the into the groove again and to get technology yeah. to, into the hands of increasing productivity. This is a real treat. William Lee is known to write dense must-read reports. For years, he did this at IMF, at Citigroup, now at the Milken Institute. But then you'd love to come out with these brilliant original building charts. The JOLT survey, the amount of people being hired as compared to the amount of job openings. To summarize for radio, I just put the chart out on Twitter. We have almost halved from the peak, and we're down 26% on a quick cycle basis analysis. I did there's a numerator and there's a denominator. Is it about a lack of hirings? Is it about too many job openings? Which way does this cut? It's about hiring, not keeping pace with job openings. And what does that really mean? What, when do you start looking for labor? Because you want to upgrade your labor force. You want more productive people, and you want people who are just better trained. So you're looking for a lot of people. And right now, at 4.3 level of unemployment, you're saying, gee, I have a tough time finding the kind of people I want. But at the same time, what's the secret sauce behind hiring? you got to raise wages, right? you got to hire up. Why won't wages go up? Because this chart is ugly. It's it's log quadratic. There's an accelerative force here because to the companies lack of don't need the labor. Because at two wait a minute, you just told me they have they, they want have, to they upgrade. Want to. Hey, I I want I'm lost. Tom, I want this is be, like the conversation I had this weekend. Tom, I want to be rich and thin, but you know I'm still poor and fat. You know, and I've been poor and fat for forty years. Just because I want Why something. Why is he looking at me? <laughs> Just because I'm, I'm, you know, I want something doesn't mean I get it, right? And and so companies want to have better labor, but they're not willing to pay up for it because they know the labor isn't being productive enough because the revenues aren't there to pay them. And so they said, look, I'm not willing to pay up, but I'm really looking aggressively to get better worker. So I'm going to take my time. I'm going to use part time, overtime, anytime I, anytime I can get, but not full time because with full time I got to worry about healthcare costs, this whole Obamacare transition. Why put up with that? So until I find the perfect guy, I'm going to be aggressively looking, but I'm not hiring. And more importantly, I'm not putting up wages. And that's where you don't get inflation because all the transitory inflation we're getting is from the exchange rate, from oil prices, but not sustained wage I, growth. I would just cut in here, David, and say the key phrase there from Professor Lee was the idea of no revenue. Mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. That's that's what everybody's looking for. Bill, if you had a couple of minutes with the, with the Fed chair, what would you say? I look at your notes, and it seems like a huge takeaway here is you are a, not one who thinks that we should be focusing on the balance sheet uh, at this point. Why, why is that the case? Why, why is your because, because call that we should say, be looking I at right say, now? Chair Yellen, what's driving your balance sheet policy? What, in theory, bothers you about the balance it's sheet? It's a big number. It's a big number. <laughs> and that's all you're going to tell me is that it's $4 trillion, Bill. Where the hell have you been? Yeah. And I said, you know, $4 trillion rolled to the GDP. Next year, it's going to be smaller. Next year after that, it's going to be smaller. So if you leave it alone as a share of GDP, it automatically starts to go down. The thing that you should be telling everybody out there is what? What's driving my monetary policy normalization? You're telling me the real rate to, and, and not and expected inflation could get me a, a, a nominal interest rate of like 3% plus? Great. I know the principle behind that. What's the balance sheet principle? Uh, it, John Taylor's telling you, look at reserve use by banks. And yes, reserve use has gone up, but it has nothing to do with your operating system now because you now have a quarter 
system that's divorced the size of the balance sheet from your operating system. So you don't need to worry about the size of the balance sheet just to be able to maintain the Fed funds rate where it is. So ultimately, Janet Yellen, why are you using the balance sheet as a policy tool? And then maybe you might come back to me and say, Bill, I'm worried about the term premium. And I said, is that the job monitor policy to get the term premium from a negative number to a positive number? No, that's what the markets are supposed to do. So there again, go back to leaving the balance sheet alone, raise rates because there are market distortions associated with it, and don't tell everybody the lie that you're worried about inflation because you know you're not. Is this a thing where once the Fed begins to unwind this balance sheet, it's going to it's going to continue uh, on and on, on, depending on who perhaps replaces Chair Yellen, who else fills these seats on, on the Federal Reserve Board? Is this something that's uh, that's subject to change here in these next few months? I, I think they're so committed to it, they can't go backwards. So it's gone institutionally. To, it, institutionally, they in order for them to maintain the credibility, yes, they're going to be reduced in size of the balance sheet. But they told you how they're going to do it. We're going to do it so slowly, you're going to be bored out of your brains. You're going to be watching grass grow, right, or, or paint dry, or whatever metaphor you want to use. That's how they're going to do it. And if it's that unimportant to you, why mess with it? To begin with, but now you're stuck. You have to mess with you know, it. Do it slowly. But if they don't get wage growth because your hires to opening chart, <laughs> I, I, I mean, how can you raise rates into a, a because, tepid wage growth, tepid real wage growth environment? Because raising rates is not going to do anything to the economy right now because no CEO out there is going to tell you I'm not in, uh, expanding capacity because of the cost of capital. Cost of capital doesn't matter. What matters to me is I don't get revenues. I don't get demand. And, you know, if you raise, if you actually raise rates, you might actually get consumers mm. to spend more. And that's probably the next the next time I come back here and I'll explain how that yeah. works to you. There you go. Very good. <laughs> Bill Lee with us with the Milken Institute. Thank you so much. I put that chart out. On Twitter, it's an absolutely remarkable chart. What's what's occurred? And, and a major shout out to one Michael McKee. Do you know him, David? Yeah, Garrett? I do. He's an, an occasional guest. <laughs> Michael McKee, way out front with the importance of the Jolt Survey, yes. used to lecture me. Time you got to pay the Jolt yes. Survey. Uh, joining us right now on, on, on banking, it's been way, way too long since we caught up uh, with him. Certainly the dean of uh, the view of all of the banking, too big to fail, regional banks, small banks as well. Gerard Cassidy, RBC Capital. Uh, Marcus, we'll Gerard. Ask him about ticks, I suppose, or lobsters, right? Well, go, yeah, we usually do a lobster report. <laughs> we'll get to that in, okay, a, good. In, a, in a moment. Gerard Cassidy, where's the value in banking right now? Big, big banks, regionals, or the lesser banks? Which is it? Tom, I think the the real value is the largest banks, and the reason being is that they should get a very good scorecard this week on CCAR, which is the stress test that they do every year. But more importantly, as you might recall, a couple of weeks ago, the Treasury issued a paper on the modifications that they're thinking for Dodd-Frank, and those modifications that Dodd-Frank will be the big, uh, the big banks will be the biggest beneficiaries. Are we getting better at doing these these stress tests? I wonder what we learned from the Treasury Department about this administration's interest in, in continuing them, and uh, if five, six, seven years after this law was passed, it's, it's become a more reliable way of assessing the, the integrity of a bank. It, it certainly has done a very good job in measuring the integrity of the banks. Um, they may have actually gone a little too far. Even Governor Torillo, he's the former Federal Reserve uh, Board of Governor who was responsible for creating these tests, and even he pointed out that maybe they've gone too far in terms of being too strict. So I think what the Treasury is going to do is ease back a bit to be able to stimulate lending more because these tests have gone a little bit too far. 
Gerard, the criticism has been that they're they're too quantitative. What 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 does that mean exactly? And if not quantitative, what should a stress test be? Oh, it's interesting because the quantitative part of the test assumes a draconian economic outlook, and they take a look at the bank's loan portfolio to see how it's impacted. And of course, you're going to generate hundreds of millions of dollars of losses, and you need the capital to be able to sustain that. And the industry does that extremely well now. On the qualitative front, which is what we're seeing this week, that's where it's a subjective analysis by the Fed on internal systems and corporate governance. And there's a debate mm-hmm. whether the qualitative part of the test should continue, and we expect that to end. It has already uh, been uh, canceled for the banks under $250 billion in assets. Jared, what's the mindset of management on deploying cash to shareholders? One of the great themes we've heard from you, from Charles Peabody, there's been a revolutionary shift, if you will, in the thinking of what to do with cash at banks. Do you buy it? Is that sustained now and embedded in the process? I think it is, especially with a few of the bigger banks. Citigroup, in particular, is very focused on returning that excess cash or excess capital. Our biggest banks, as you guys probably know, are not permitted to buy depositories because their market shares are so large it's against the law. So they have to give it back. So managements are more focused on that. And I think M&T Bank Corp up in Buffalo, New York, is probably one of the best at doing it. I know you've been looking at – you had a great note out looking at uh, what effect the balance sheet unwinded the Fed might have on these banks. Give us the, the broad takeaway from the research you've you've done on that. In other words, we got, we, we got a, a rough outline from Chair Yellen a couple weeks back about how the Fed's going to proceed uh, doing this. What does that mean for, uh, for the, the medium-sized large banks? It's probably going to be the next big issue for the industry. Many of us recall what happens to banks in a credit cycle, but we don't see a – cycle coming anytime soon. However, the liability side of the balance sheet, the industry's deposits have skyrocketed. This is primarily due to quantitative easing. Mm-hmm. Now that the Fed's going to start to roll back, peel back their balance sheet, inevitably the deposits are going to come down. We think in checkable accounts alone, there's $1.2 trillion of excess deposits in the system today. And now, folks, we go to where we always go with Gerard Cassidy. <laughs> That little bank you need to know about. This is fun. Uh, Jerry, you know, I give you grief about this, but it's fun. Where's the value in a little bank right now? Give us a stock. Tom, I think one of the names investors should look at is Prosperity Bank Shares, ticker FB, PB, I mean, uh, Peter Bill. Prosperity is down in Texas, run by uh, Chairman and CEO Zolman. He does a phenomenal job. Texas, as you know, is a growth area for this part of the country, uh, this part of the U.S. I would also point out his loan-to-deposit ratio is very low, and it ties into our comments about where are how the uh, tightening by the Fed, the unwind on the Fed, is going to affect balance sheets. He's perfectly positioned for that. It's done a double. Come on. In the last 18 months, this puppy's gone 35 to 75. It's rolled over a little bit. I get it. How can it extend out further gains? Oh, I think what we'll see is as the consolidation of the industry continues going forward, his stock will certainly benefit from some of his peers, not saying that he'll sell out. But he has run such a strong bank for so long. And as the M&A activity picks up for the industry, he certainly will get some benefit from that. But also he's demonstrated he knows how to run a bank very, very well. Jared Cassidy, thank you so much. Uh, PB 
uh, peanut butter, PB, Prosperity Bank <laughs> shares, Houston, Texas, 3,033 employees. Good morning, David Zalman. Um, Tim uh, Tamanis, uh, the vice chairman, and Edward Safadi. I hope I'm pronouncing that. Safadi, I guess I should say. And Houston, Texas. Gerard Cassidy, thank you so much as always. Great briefing. You're welcome. I love doing this, David Gurr, with Gerard Cassidy. He's been doing this, you know, since lobsters first came to Maine. We didn't get our check on lobsters. We'll get another we, check yeah, on we'll lobsters. Get it. We'll get summer we'll get on. I had a yeah. few last week in there. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, but it's really important, folks, that when we spend, you know, to be kind, 90% of our time on six banks. Yes. I mean, it seems that way. Maybe seven banks. And there's a whole other banking world out there. And guys like Gerard Cassidy, uh, they try to find value. They can be wrong. But uh, there he is, Gerard Cassidy. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner, and Smith, Incorporated. Bob Sinch is with Amherst Pierpont with a storied career on Wall Street. Bob, I got the DXY chart up here, sort of a quick cursory look at uh, dollars, old trading partners and all. For the first half of the year, the dollar's down 5.8%. Are you surprised? Well, a little bit about the uh, about the magnitude of the adjustment. Um, you know, we we did feel at the end of last year the market's gotten a little bit too bulled up on the dollar, and uh, as as we often see at the beginning of the year, have great expectations uh, for the Fed and what they'll do during the year. Um, and then, of course, we get a, a weak first quarter. We've gotten a little bit of a setback on inflation, and so there is now uh, increasing uncertainty about how much the Fed will follow through. But I think on the other side, we've now taken a market from being excessively positive on the dollar to probably being excessively negative on the dollar and positive on a number of other currencies. So I think we're in a we're in a bottoming process. And in fact, the dollar will probably have a pretty good second half of the year and maybe end up the end of this year where it ended up the end of last year. What's the, the source of the greatest uncertainty about Fed follow through uh, at this point? You know, I think that it's it's really been the inflation numbers. We've had a a big surprise. Part of it related to suddenly putting in cheaper prices for cell phone usage and everything else, and that's had a big impact on the uh, on the reported inflation numbers. But I do think that it's interesting. You know, um, a year ago it was rising inflation, sort of dragging the Fed into higher rates. What's interesting now is the inflation numbers have rolled over a little bit, and this recent drop in oil prices will probably contribute to that a little bit in the months ahead. But it's, but it's the Fed that's actually kind of now resisting the decline in inflation and talking more about normalization. And that's an issue that, that I thought was a, was a big dichotomy for a number of years, and that is the Fed would like to have, I think, the real Fed funds rate adjusted for inflation – back to at least zero. Um, and so it's just been difficult for them to get there. I think they now look at the labor market, they look at overall financial conditions, and they say, you know what, this is our environment to get the real Fed funds rate back to zero. Now, the question will be, does a real Fed funds rate at zero imply a nominal Fed funds rate of one and a half, because that's the underlying inflation rate, 
Or does it imply a, a nominal Fed funds rate of two because the inflation rate is, is going to get back to two or maybe a touch above? And that's where I think the uncertainty for the dollar has crept in in the last three or four months is we don't know whether, you know, in effect that zero Fed funds rate, real Fed funds rate implies a one and a half or a two Fed funds rate. I think going into that last meeting, we, we had a number of conversations about the Fed's ability to walk and chew gum at the same time, if they could focus on unwinding that balance sheet while they uh, tried to raise rates. It sounds like from what you're saying, there, there is uh, inherent difficulty in doing both things. Well, I think that, that the market's looking for guidance on everything all at once, as it always is. And I think the Fed's taking this in, in steps. Um, we've had, um, you know, rate hikes in March and June. You know, our House view is that in September we'll get uh, more clarity on beginning to wind down the, the balance sheet, let the balance sheet work its way down gradually. Um, and that in December we'll probably get another rate hike. So I think we do have – in a sense, four action meetings this year, three of them rate hikes, one of them a, a balance sheet discussion. You mentioned uh, crude oil here. If, if I could ask you just about what we saw uh, last week, of course, with the downturn in prices for, for oil, where do you, where do you see WTI uh, headed? Is, was, was that a, a blip, or do you think we're, we're headed for, for lower prices here going forward? You know, um, I've, I've been expecting lower prices for much of this year. I think we actually may have bottomed out now. Um, we were focusing on the low 42 range. I think we had a low back last November at 42.20. We just undercut it around 42.10 or so. Um, that looks to me like a little bit of a double bottom, mm -hmm. and oil tends to like to double bottom, double top. So it wouldn't surprise me that we put in a bit of a double bottom here in the low 42s and that we maybe trade now, you know, 42.52 over the next couple of months. I mean, I, I, I'm intrigued by your real Fed funds rate, Bob. I, I guess I've looked at that chart before. I'm going to make it up here, folks. It is absolutely original, the duration of the negative real funds rate we've had before. I mean, it defines a lower bound, and yet within that, we're still within the great moderation. It's quiescent compared to what Mr. Volcker had to put up with in the double recession of the 80s. Is the great moderation still intact? You know, I, I think it is. And, you know, as we know, we've talked about a number of times, I'm a big believer in the, in the importance of demographics in, uh, in dictating uh, trends in the economy. And I think that, that uh, uh, with the exception of Mr. Gura, the, uh, <laughs> the rest of us are getting into that uh, – that age of, uh, of, of savings and, uh, and investment and, and trying to live off our savings. So I think the, the profile of the baby boomers is now, um, you know, very much of an investment profile. They're not borrowing. They're not leveraging. And as a result, I think it is a, it is a great moderation in the product markets where there is not a great moderation, I think, is in the asset markets because that's where the baby boomers are involved. That's where they're putting their money. And so what we're seeing is, I think, a, a big focus not only on bonds <clears throat> but now movement out into high-yield debt and, importantly, I think, into, uh, into dividend-paying equities as another place for, for the baby boomers to invest. So in a sense, that, that great moderation in the product markets, in the housing markets – uh, is showing up as as a lack of moderation yeah. in a sense in asset markets. It's a I've never seen this chart is I'm going to feature this all month. Bob, since you may have just come up with my chart of the year, it is amazing the period on a ten year moving average 
from the middle 90s to the crisis, how they had a real funds rate of 2%. They actually managed the thing to where the textbooks want to be. The the textbooks would say that the real Fed funds rate should be at or slightly below growth potential. Uh, and that's where it was for, for, for decades. And what we've had now is just this you know, unprecedented and I think probably unhealthy period where the real Fed funds rate was negative uh, by a significant amount, particularly if you take into account the impact of the expanding balance sheet. Um, and again, so I think what we're looking at now is a Fed that it, unless something goes wrong, they want to normalize. And again, the only uncertainty I see is whether normalizing yeah. that real Fed funds rate is one and a half or two. Quickly here, we had Bill, I'll have you debate by proxy. Bill Lee was here and said the Fed shouldn't be worried about unwinding the balance sheet uh, at all. Uh, do, do you understand that argument? Does that argument make sense to you? Why do you think the Fed is wanting to tackle the balance sheet right now? Because I think it, they believe that it's just unhealthy for a central bank to own that much, that much. That's, of a government's that size, debt. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just not normal. It's not healthy. And in fact, when you think about I'll go back to the demographics. You think about the, the, the baby boomers. There are a lot of us who wouldn't mind owning more government debt for the long term if it paid us a reasonable rate of return. So yeah. I think it would be healthy to shift it to the private sector. Fat finger cinch with us from Amherst Pierpont. I mean, come on, Bob, you, you worked at a number of major houses. And when something happens and everybody knows a bonus just went out the window, everybody blames a proverbial fat finger. Come on. I don't buy it ever. Well, you know, you, you, you have to wonder uh, if you look at gold <clears throat> at gold prices. What usually would drive it uh, lower would be a stronger dollar. We don't have that. Would be higher mm -hmm. interest rates. We don't have that. Um, so maybe it is somebody who's unwinding a at big, the end of big, the half. Unwinding a big position. Yeah, that's a that's a distinct possibility. Mm -hmm. But unwinding a big position is different than a fat figure. I mean, I think it's good that Bob Moon mentions that idea. Trading errors, you know, I think the, the mythology of the street is they happen all the time. And I, I, I think systems are actually pretty good, given the volumes. I, I think systems are very good. They've gotten a lot better over the years. There's yeah. always a, a little flashing signal. Uh, you know, I can't even move too much money between my bank accounts without I'm asking whether I really want to send that much or not, So or, or that little. So yeah. I, I do think that, that uh, the, the probabilities of that, particularly in the mm -hmm. London, New York time zones, are pretty limited. How do you respond as a currency bond guy to where the equity markets are? 21,394 with futures up seven. I mean, do you, can you link that into the Bob Cinch world? You know, it... Um, uh, it strikes me as that that line from uh, what was it an officer and a gentleman? I got no place else to go, and I think that's really what's been driving uh, what's going on in, in in a lot of equities, particularly the the dividend paying sector of the equity markets. Is that uh, is that dividend yields of high quality companies are very competitive with ten year bond yields? So, um, in a, and you have some upside potential, and probably not as much you know perceived downside risk in in pricing. So. Net-net, uh, again, this is where I think the Fed wants to try to normalize conditions 
And it's not normal for high-quality equities to still be paying higher dividends than 10-year treasuries. We've uh, valued your perspective on sterling here over the last uh, year year plus now. Uh, We're going to hear from Prime Minister Theresa May a little later this morning, carry that for you live at uh, 9.30 Wall Street Time. She's going to talk about the rights of EU citizens in in the UK. What did we learn last week from her visit to Brussels, from that uh, summit that she participated in, from the reception uh, she got with her plan there to to afford afford some rights to EU citizens in the UK? Well, I think what we've learned is that uh, my guess is this goes into extra time, um, that that they probably won't get all these issues solved within two years. I think we learned between last week and the Italian uh, situation over the weekend is that the EU wants to stay as, as uh, uh, coalesced as they can. We had a potential issue with Italy versus the EU, and the European Commission just just basically said, we'll take it away from the pan-European banking regulators, and you go ahead and deal with it yourself, because I don't think they want any conflict within, mm-hmm. the, uh, within the EU. So uh, I think what we see is that is, is, is sort of both sides staking out their positions. I still believe that as the second largest importer of EU products – um, that when, when we get to the final analysis and we get involved in trade deals, the EU has a lot to lose in not having uh, an agreement with the UK. I mean, UK uh, imports from the EU is second only to the US, and, and it's close, a close yeah. second. So I, I think this is going to be a long, long, drawn-out process. Um, and, you know, again, uh, I think it goes into overtime. I, I, I lost money this weekend betting on the Yankees, the dreaded New York Yankees. Uh, where's the appropriate trade right now, Bob Cinch? What's the trade to uh, excite the second half of the year? You know, I think that um, one of the most – you talk about the dollar movements. One of the most volatile um, uh, currencies versus the dollar has been the Mexican peso. Yeah, extended. Worst, worst performer in the second half of the year, best performer in the first yeah. half of the year. I think dollar max under 18, I would be long dollars. I think with the okay. Fed continuing to move, with the Mexican Mexican economy slowing – and the Bank of Mexico finished in hiking rates, I think dollar Mexico's higher. You heard it there, Bob Cinch. 17.93 on Mexican peso. Uh, Mr. Cinch suggesting stronger dollar, weaker peso, which would drive Mexican peso in the direction of 17 up to 18 handle, 1920. I, I, I'm going to say it here for Bob Cinch. I mean, his target's 23. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Don't want to say that. That's not accurate. But anyways, seriously, there it is. On uh, the swings of the Mexican peso, Bob Sitch looking for stronger dollar versus weaker Mexican peso. Um, This is a real pleasure. He is the mayor of Boston. He's a different kind of mayor. Uh, Martin Joseph Walsh, Marty Walsh. Uh, taking over with with awfully big shoes to feel in in Tom Menino. He joins us from the Mayor's Conference in Florida. Mayor Walsh, what was it like taking over for Tom Menino? He was such a legend. What did you do the first day when you had to fill the Menino shoes? Well, the first day I I had my first meeting was about um, public safety and crime in the neighborhoods. I promised that in the campaign office. And then later that day, uh, corporation counsel came in and told me I had to make a decision on casinos, which I was not expecting. Mm-hmm. So I realized that yeah. this job is a little different than being a state representative. And uh, for the next few months after that, mm-hmm. it was it was it was fast. But you know, fall, following a 20-year mayor, um, 
I think people, a lot of people thought it would be really, really hard. Not that, mm. not that Tommy was not a legend, but it was the fact that people were kind of interested in seeing. So many people grew up with just Tommy Nino. They didn't right, know any other right. there. So, so yeah. it's kind of almost like you get like a fresh start at it uh, because so many people were wondering what it would be like. And right. it's been an incredible opportunity. Uh, Mayor Walsh, here's the numbers you know. We welcome Bloomberg 1200 Boston and all of our radio listeners across the nation and worldwide to the topic you're focused on in Miami and the topic you're focused on 24-7. Here are the numbers, folks, over the last five years. 70, 87, 108, 150, and 196. Opioid deaths in uh, Boston have essentially doubled over the last 24, maybe 30 months as well. Give us an update on how you and MGH and the other hospitals uh, in the entire medical community in Boston are dealing with the opioid epidemic. Well, well, Max General Hospital has a, a couple programs over there. They're doing some incredible work. Boston Medical Center also is doing some incredible work uh, with a program called the Viper Program. Uh, we're working in Boston. We created the first ever in the country Office of Recovery Services. We changed our main phone number. Um, we added our main phone number, I should say. Folks looking for treatment, they can call 311 in the city of Boston and get access to, to treatment. Um, we're trying to make treatment easier for folks to access. Uh, but also, we have to do more around prevention, and we have to talk to our kids younger. Um, the epidemic that's going on in our country, I, I would say it's been going on for probably 20 years uh, because it was cracked before it was heroin and now yeah. it's heroin um, and pills and prescription pills. And, you know, yesterday we had a meeting here at the U.S. Conference of Mayors where um, we had over 50 mayors in the room plus staff talking about um, the addiction all across America in small, quiet suburban towns, in, in rural areas, in urban areas. And my first meeting three years ago when I was appointed the chair of the task force here in, in, in U.S. Conference of Mayors, we had 12 mayors in the room. So you think about this issue and how it's magnified now across America. Uh, it's in every living room. Mm-hmm. It's in every kitchen. Um, and families don't know what to do. And what we're trying to do now is provide the mayors and folks with a toolkit on how to how to deal with it, and Boston really has done some incredible things. As has like states like Minnesota's done. Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota's done some incredible things as well. Uh, so you know we're trying to share best practices and try. Right. I don't know if you're going to get ahead of this, but uh, too many young people are losing their lives. Yeah. Too many older people are losing their lives. David Gurr, yeah, you're dealing with it on a local level. You're seeing states deal with it at the state level. Is the federal government doing enough? We remember well more than a year ago now, Governor Chris Christie in Belmont, New Hampshire, talking very movingly about his experience. Uh, watching friends with with opioid addictions, what does the federal government need to do in your estimation? It has to do more. I mean, it has to, it has to really think about national policy and how we deal with this. And also, we have to think about how do we how do we help law enforcement and be able to get these the drugs off the street and guns off the street. Quite honestly, because sometimes they go hand in hand with the accessibility to it. But the, the federal government they don't necessarily need to tell us how to react and how to do our job, but they have to help us with funding. Um, the president, in his budget, uh, did put some money in for, for, for addiction services, which I gave him credit for, um, but it's not enough, and it doesn't go far enough. And I think that it's time now. This is a national crisis. And during the presidential election, you know, Hillary Clinton was the first to talk about it. Chris Christie was very open. Jeb Bush spoke about it. Donald Trump spoke about it. Bernie Sanders, they all spoke about the need to, to deal with this issue. Uh, and, and this is really what we should be focusing on issues like drug addiction in our country. We should be focused on issues like infrastructure in our country and housing in our country instead of instead of getting sidetracked all day long about repealing uh, the Affordable Care yeah. Act or 
But I mean, those are the issues that, that really Americans care about that will affect every well, American in America. Mayor Walsh was at the conference of mayors down in Miami, uh, Florida. I wonder what the what, what's driving the conversation down there. It's an opportunity for you to talk to others in your position across this this country. What's the the big overarching theme of this year's uh, conference down well, in Miami? Well, I, I think there's a couple. One is that that we're a bipartisan group of mayors, and I think that's been that's been mentioned almost in every single. Um, conversation we've had. The, the, the leader this year, the president, is, is Mitch Cornish, uh, the mayor out of Oklahoma City. Um, he's a Republican. Um, you know, so, so it's about how do we move our agendas forward. That's kind of the big theme. But healthcare seems to be the big number one dominant. Um, when I started the week, I thought it would be infrastructure, but now it's clearly healthcare. Um, the impacts that, that the the Senate bill would have on local hospitals all across America uh, could be detrimental. Um, also, the, the impact of seniors. And in, in Boston, we have obviously some of the greatest hospital institutions in the world. Um, we will feel an impact, but we have, they've been there so long that we'll, we, I think they can absorb it over time. But you get some of these hospitals around America in small little towns, that is the economic engine. Uh, and if they lose, you know, patients that have health insurance, um, it, they don't have the backup like we do in Boston. And, and even in Boston, it'll be difficult. We're talking hundreds, you know, I think there's millions and millions of dollars that are impacted here. So, so this Affordable Care Act is kind of taking over the dominance of the conference, asking the, the Senate to delay the vote on Thursday and, and to really work some positives into the bill. My fear, though, is that a lot of the senators that are holding out on Thursday are holding out because they don't think the bill goes far enough. That's a concern of mine. Give me a city that, that you admire. I imagine you're talking to, to your counterparts uh, leading other cities, and you're hearing about things they're doing uh, differently, things that are, are innovative. As you come back from Miami to Boston, what's a, what's a big takeaway, something you've seen that you might like to implement in Boston? Uh, that's a good one. I think... Um, um, let me think of some stuff. I, you know, obviously, uh, Eric Garcetti in LA is doing some great things around the environment. We are as well. Um, a, a lot of the technology that we're having here, I think, um, you know, I'm just trying to think there's a, there's a lot of different things going on here. I mean, I admire the cities like Louisville, mm. um, you know, um, New Orleans, obviously. Um, down here in Miami Beach, uh, the mayor, mayor Levine's doing some great things down here in Miami. Um, you have, you know, Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, Lorzo is doing some innovative things in, in Providence. I think that. Uh, we, we're all kind of sharing best practices on how we do things. There's some mayors in, in Minnesota that are doing some incredible yeah. things on, on opioids and drug addiction that we aren't doing in Boston yeah. and that we aren't doing in the country. And so we look at different places to, to pick up different ideas. There's not one idea that jumped out at me this week, but there's some great people down here. Nan Whaley in, in Dayton, Ohio, uh, is doing some incredible things with the Tri-County mayors on addiction as well. She was talking about it yesterday. Um, so there's some great mayors here doing some great yeah. things. Tell me about what you need from Mr. Trump. It's been such a zoo, and we're following a zoo every day like anybody else. What does a mayor of a big city need from President Trump? I think we need him to be the president. I think we need him to stop um, the rhetoric with the Twitter. And I think I think he needs to put some people around him that understand the process. I think that every time that, that, that he responds uh, negatively to a tweet or to some outrageous statement, it, it affects all our cities indirectly. And I think that I, I would ask him um, if I had a chance to sit with him that you know he still has an opportunity to to, to have a good presidency uh, and get the get the ship back on on on, on or get the train back on the track, if mm-hmm. you will. Because right now you just can't keep just pulling these issues out of the air and going at them. Focus on infrastructure. I mean, he talked about that. Focus on infrastructure. Focus on the addiction. As I mentioned earlier, I think he put $500 million into a budget for addiction services. Focus on, 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 on opioids and, and drug addiction in America. Focus on housing. Um, 
you know, the immigration thing, t- take it, it, take what he's done and all the rhetoric around the conversations about sanctuary cities and taking funding away and, and turn it around and say, okay, let's tell Congress to do a comprehensive immigration reform bill. I think that those are the things that we need our president to get back to. I mean, we're not used to this type of, this type of leadership in the country. Um, and I know a lot of people, not a lot, people still support the president that are listening to the radio. I, I want him to be successful. I think we all want him to be successful because we want the United States to be successful. But right now, we're not around the world. We're not viewed as as the country we were eight months ago, and that's a that's a shame and sad sad statement for America. Mayor Walsh, a couple of weeks back, Tom and I came into the studio. We saw the news about Jeff Immelt uh, leaving General Electric, and it caught us by surprise. I wonder the degree to which it caught you by uh, surprise, and uh, what it means for uh, that that's that that. That company's role in the city of Boston, the role he's played, and what the company's going to be doing going forward. Yeah, you know, I, I was I was a little surprised. I, I don't know the corporate world as much. I was surprised to see that he was being moved out. He's been there for a while, but but now when you see the new person coming in that has a healthcare background as well, you, you see him. It makes sense. They moved to Boston. Uh, you know, we have these great hospitals, teaching hospitals. We have all these medical schools in Boston and Massachusetts. So I guess you can see the the the, the kind of the thought process behind it. Um, you know, GE's been an incredible neighbor. They've only been there for several months now, but they've already made, you know, over $50 million investment in philanthropic support, whether it's schools or healthcare uh, or job training. So um, I look forward to working with the new person. But Jeff was, um, you know, yeah. I'll, be for gra- I'll be grateful to Jeff for, for, for making the move uh, to Boston, Massachusetts. Down from the Caskin Flagon, after you go over the Kenmore Bridge, instead of turning left on the Yorkey Way, you now turn right on David Ortiz Drive. Was that fun uh, doing your own infrastructure last week? Yeah, it was great. You know, you know, it was, it was bittersweet. I mean, it was great. To, and I said this about that, David. You know, he's getting a lot of accolades because his play on the field. And, and, and I mentioned that at the, at, the, at the dedication. But also, you know, the day after the marathon bombing, um, when the city was in a de- desperate state as far as, you know, not sure what's going on, David Ortiz took the field at Fenway and he made an incredible statement. And he's been such an important piece of our city off the field, whether it's through his own children's trust fund or, or the things he's done. He, he, he's, a, he's a Bostonian, born in the Dominican Republic, an immigrant. Uh, that is that is as much of a Bostonian as anybody, and it was a great honor. But it was sad too because not seeing him on the field, like when you go to Fenway, you miss him in the in the fourth spot. Um, you miss him uh, being there for all these great moments. You know, uh, um, I, I grew up in the era of not winning World Series and losing uh, really? in '86. Um, and for the young people that, that grew up seeing, you know, like it's normal for the Red Sox to win World Series. Um, it, 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 you know, Big Poppy was was as big, if not yeah. the biggest part of all of that. And my problem, Mayor, is he's got some free time on his hands. You watch your back. <laughs> he may be running. Yeah, he looks good, though. I tell you, he looks like he can still play. I mean, he's uh, incredible shape. And, uh, yeah. He's just such a, he's a humble man. I mean, he's just a humble man. And, you know, when you see an athlete that's such a, that has risen to the level that he has, um, to be so humble, it's great to see yeah. that at the end of their career, they're humble. Mayor, thank you so much, particularly yes, your thanks. comments from Miami on uh, what you've been working on with the mayor's the opioid epidemic. Marty Walsh is the mayor of Boston. And again, we say good morning. Bloomberg 1200, uh, Boston as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.